flick towards the near post, bouncing around dangerously, and South Korea have scored! Can you believe it? How much significance should we place on a game of football? Germany are going home from this World Cup! In January 1978, Rainer Werner Fassbinder called action on his 33rd feature production in just 10 years. The marriage of Maria Braun was the first in what he would retrospectively title the BRD trilogy, Bundesrepublik Deutschland. Together with Veronica Voss and Lola, the film addressed in allegorical terms the state of post-war West Germany. The story begins in 1945, while the war is still raging. Maria, played by Hannah Schigola, marries Wehrmacht officer Hermann Braun, played by Klaus Lovitsch. Within hours, Hermann has headed east to serve at the front. But like so many, he goes missing and in his absence, Maria tries, by fair means or foul, to climb out of the rubble and secure for herself a life of prosperity. She begins by becoming a sex worker in a bar, patronised by American GIs. These are your eyes. These are my eyes. And these are your lips. And these are my lips. Fassbinder ends the film, and the marriage, nine years later on July the 4th, 1954, the very day West Germany faced Hungary in the World Cup final. At the time, Hungary, known as the Magical Magyars, were considered to be the greatest team ever assembled in the history of the sport. On the way to the final, Hungary had scored 25 goals, a record to this day, and along that route, they had thrashed West Germany 8 goals to 3. The final began as expected, with Hungary going 2-0 up inside 10 minutes. 10 minutes later, however, the sides were level, and as the game wore on, with the two teams failing to break the deadlock, it appeared they had fought one another to a stalemate. But with just six minutes left on the clock... To the thousands of West German fans packed into the stadium that afternoon, and the millions more back home with their ears glued to their radios, it was more than just a football match. It was the miracle of Bern. Yet another sign of indomitable Teutonic strength, an indication that once again Germany could rise from the ashes of defeat. Never mind that the West German team had been pumped full of pervitin, an amphetamine-based drug developed by Nazi scientists to make soldiers fight longer and harder. Never mind that West Germany's economic revival was really the result of the Marshall Plan, America's multi-billion dollar investment program to help reconstruct a country that, barely a decade earlier, had all but brought European civilization to its knees. Never mind that very few, if any, of the West German population was prepared to own up to having been participants in the most catastrophic case of genocide in history. So it is testament to Fassbinder's conscience that he had the conviction to make a film that suggested West Germany's economic revival was merely papering over a continued moral bankruptcy. Here is Hannah Schigola speaking with Erica Carter, professor of German at King's College London, at the BFI in 2017. It was the period, it was this this uh, uh, generation of women who had to rebuild uh, Germany because the, a lot of men were, haven't, haven't turned back and then those who turned back were, were sort of uh, yeah, unbalanced. 
My father, when he came back, he used to always say, life isn't worth, any, worth anything. Mm -hmm. Like in a little, little, by the way, life isn't worth anything, being part of so much destruction that they couldn't, they were like, they were going through life like uh, strangers to life. Fassbinder usually worked from his own screenplays. And while he had developed the initial idea for Maria Braun, the script is credited to Peter Mettersheimer and Pia Frohlich. By that stage in his career, Fassbinder had long been a central figure in the new German cinema. A loose movement of filmmakers, Werner Herzog, Alexander Klug, Margarete von Trotta, Volker Schlondorf and Wim Wenders, who emerged in the late 60s to collectively and idiosyncratically question the orthodoxies of a country they saw as living in denial of its Nazi past. Here is Fassbinder speaking to Peter Adams for the BBC Arts show Omnibus in 1976. The basic idea of the new German cinema is to make films again, which are important and have something to say. Films born out of our own life and experience. The films Fassbinder made resembled, on the surface at least, the sort of melodrama Hollywood had turned out for decades. From D.W. Griffith's Broken Blossoms, Frank Borzaghi's Seventh Heaven, and John Stahl's Magnificent Obsession, through to Michael Curtiz's Mildred Pierce, Max Offel's Letter from an Unknown Woman, and Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven Allows, the melodrama revolved around a virtuous woman, victimised by a repressive or suffocating set of circumstances. In fact, there are very clear parallels between Mildred Pierce and Fassbinder's film. A married woman loses her husband, embarks on her own career, suffers the death of her child, and along the way, someone pleads guilty to a murder they didn't commit. Mother, where have you been? What happened? They won't tell me anything. Who won't tell you anything? And who's there? These men. Mrs. Berrigan? Yes. We're from headquarters. The inspector would like to have you come down and have a little talk with him if it's convenient. Why? What's the matter? I'm sorry, lady. We only ask the questions. Besides, we don't rightly know what the trouble is. It's probably just something about the car or something. At this time of night? But Fassbinder's film diverges from Mildred Pierce in that while Curtiz kept any political subtext deep within the noir shadows, very clearly Maria Braun is a surrogate for West Germany after the war. In that respect, Maria resembles another Hollywood melodrama, The Revolt of Mamie Stover. I'm going to live in a house just like this. Maybe even bigger. You just wait and see. Jimmy, with enough money, you can buy anything. With a million dollars, you can build a hilltop higher than anybody else's. Okay. It's your million in your life. What is it you wanted? I think I know how to make that million. Did you ever stop and think what's going to happen when the war comes? Yes. People will die. Thousands and thousands of them. Yeah, but some will get rich. Directed in 1955 by Ralph Walsh, with Jane Russell in the title role, The Revolt of Mamie Stover was adapted from a novel by William Branford Huey. It centres on a sex worker who is forced out of San Francisco by the police. Mamie heads for Hawaii with no prospects other than to continue in prostitution. However, with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Mamie sees an opportunity to purchase real estate abandoned by US nationals fleeing the islands. Mamie then rents the properties to the military and, after having amassed a fortune, decides to return to the mainland, only to have her earnings confiscated. Evident in the novel, but pronouncedly watered down in the film, Mamie's story is a reactionary allegory, critical of the opportunities that opened up for women due to the advent of war. 
Here is Todd Haynes, director of Far From Heaven, Carol, and a HBO miniseries adaptation of Mildred Pierce. I first encountered Fassbinder's films um, in the early 80s when I was in college. Um, and by this point, particularly in sort of in academic circles and, and sort of film cineast circles, the films had sort of reached a critical mass. And the program I was in at Brown was very influenced by feminist film criticism that was coming out of Europe and the direct link to the melodramas from the 50s, which had been the subject of a lot of writing by people like Laura Mulvey and Marianne Doan. So there's a beautiful quote that, I, that I've taken very much to heart in my own work, which is that you can tell stories about how you feel, you can put your messages into movies. Fassbinder began to identify a problem with this, and he writes, people often criticize my films for being pessimistic. There are certainly plenty of reasons for being pessimistic, but I don't see my films that way. They are founded in the belief that revolution doesn't belong on the cinema screen, but outside, in the world. Never mind if a film ends pessimistically, if it exposes certain mechanisms clearly enough to show people how exactly they work, then the ultimate effect is not pessimistic. My goal is to reveal such mechanisms in a way that makes people realize the necessity of changing their own reality. Which is why Fassbender ends his film with the end of the marriage and plays it against the sounds of West Germany's victory in the World Cup. In other words, we see one thing while hearing another. And it is within the differential that we come to understand just what he means. As Schiegele indicated in the BFI interview, Maria is the personification of post-war West Germany, and all her material wealth shrouds a moral bankruptcy. Fassbinder was pushing that discrepancy to force his audience to look at their own lives. The film opens with a photograph of Adolf Hitler, while the final image is that of the then West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt, whom Fassbender held as a contemporary example of the country's moral malaise. However, two months after Fassbender had finished filming in February 1978, over in America, NBC television began broadcasting a four-part miniseries, Holocaust. How many dead will satisfy you? A million? Two million? We must keep on killing them, don't you see? If we stop, it's an admission of guilt. But if we go on, we prove to the world that we had total dedication to our mission. That what we did were moral and historical necessities. Try to understand that. Lauded in America, where it was honoured with two Golden Globes and five Primetime Emmys, West German television decided to broadcast it in January 1979, a matter of weeks before Fassbender's film premiered at the Berlin Film Festival. The timing was crucial as West Germany's statute of limitations on war crimes was soon to expire. Prior to its broadcast, Holocaust had provoked strong misgivings, with the most prominent critic, Holocaust survivor Eli Wiesel, calling it a soap opera and trivialization. The public reaction, however, was profound, with ratings as high as 41%, suggesting that more than 20 million viewers had watched at least one of the four episodes. Each episode was followed by a phone-in programme hosted by historians who answered questions put to them by viewers shocked by what they had seen. For almost all of them, it was a very first encounter with the horrors of the Nazi regime. Finally, the issue that had long been pathologically denied had been forced into the open. The issue was debated in the Reichstag over whether to extend the legal limit under which Nazi war criminals could be prosecuted. Chancellor Schmidt added, that the series would stimulate critical and moral reflection, which, quote, is important in view of the decision 
each of us must make in the course of this year on the statute of limitations. Here is Hannah Shigula once more. We were part of the generation of 68 and we thought that uh, uh, the condition of man has to change and society is not what it should be. And he once said that Germany has missing the, the chance to become really different because it was like, we called it the hour zero or whatever. Right. And we would have to have changed a lot of things, but then the, the, the economical miracle happened and uh, everybody was so occupied to just rebuild uh, wealth and, and had all these material things on mind that the real work was not done came the other wave and that was like, why don't we start by ourselves to change? And, uh, and so I was busy uh, trying to do that. As well as directing films, Fassbinder also worked in theatre. And it was in 1967, at the experimental Pierre Robbins Axion Theatre, that he and Schiegel first met. It was also there that Fassbinder began writing often with specific actors in mind. And it was there that his collaboration with Schiegel began, ultimately stretching across 16 films. That might suggest that Fassbinder was an amenable colleague. He was anything but. Unmercifully demanding, abusive, dismissive, manipulative, cruel and maniacally driven, he intermingled his art with his personal life, and two of his lovers died by suicide. And yet, actors and crew flocked around him. One of them was cinematographer Michel Balhaus, who lends 15 of Fassbinder's films. In 1982, the same year Fassbinder died of a drug overdose, Balhaus lit his first American film, Peter Lilienthal's comedy drama Dear Mr. Wonderful, starring Joe Pesci. You should have seen the guy. He wanted $8 for this fish. $8. I said, I'll give you three. He said, I want five. I gave him three anyway. See? Once the money's in their hands, for some reason they can't refuse it. He took it. He took it. Balhaus's time on Fassbinder's sets drilled him in many ways, but above all, it was to be quick and versatile. And that reputation is what attracted the attention of Martin Scorsese, who engaged Balhaus for his dark comedy, After Hours. Hey, what is that? Gee whiz. I mean, are you humoring me? I don't have to take that kind of shit, you know? I mean, what is it with people today? You can't say anything without getting some kind of a smart answer. You just have to be so goddamn careful about everything you say. You think I don't notice? I know what's going on. I overhear the customers at the Xerox shop when they're making fun of me. I didn't mean anything by that. I mean, it was, it was raining outside and I invited you to come into my home. I didn't have to do that, now did I? Now, first of all, you're not stupid. Look, I have trouble figuring out the tax on checks. So what? It was a very fruitful partnership with the duo working together on seven more feature films. The Colour of Money, The Last Temptation of Christ, The Life Lessons segment in New York Stories, Goodfellas, The Age of Innocence, Gangs of New York and The Departed. Here is Balhaus at the Berlin Film Festival in 2016, reminiscing with Jim Rakata about his times with Fassbinder. Then I met this guy and he looked at me and he was very unfriendly because he wanted another DP than me. So he was looking at me and thought, what's this guy doing here? 
He called you a Fernsehheini. Yeah, he called me, he called me a television st stupid guy. <laughs> he didn't fool around with like the old days uh, with lots of close-ups and stuff. No, he just did it that you can understand the the story and you could see bodies and all. And it was it was a different way of shooting, and um, that interested me a lot.